Well, friends, you are in for a special treat today um, because at this point in the service, we're going to pivot from what you see in your bulletin, and uh, we've made a we've made a switcheroo. And today, instead of me preaching, you're going to get the blessing of hearing from Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. Uh, if you've been around Trinity for a while, you possibly have heard Gary preach before. He's been with us several times over the last few years. And um, uh, Gary is a clergyman from Northern Ireland who Catherine and I first had the joy of meeting back in 2016 uh, when we were part of a cohort of Florida pastors in the Methodist Church, uh, invited to learn from Gary about matters of peace building and reconciliation. Uh, Gary has a lot of experience in that space from his work during the Troubles in Northern Ireland um, as a clergyman on the front lines of the struggle. And as a result of that work, he has been invited into other contexts to teach and to inform and to inspire uh, the Israeli-Palestinian context, the American context with political and religious divisions. Um, and so we are just so grateful to have spent some time this weekend with Gary and his wife, Joyce. Uh, we always enjoy having that time together as couples and pleased that he can bring a word of encouragement and challenge to us this morning. Would you join me in welcoming Gary? I mean, undoubtedly a book that Steve, Catherine, Marissa uh, read when you were training theologically was St. Augustine's Confessions. So I am here this week because I made the mistake of thinking I was coming this week when I was meant to be coming next week. Uh, so I was up in Tallahassee uh, speaking there on Friday evening and also Saturday morning was driving down on my assumption that I was preaching here today, but didn't read the email correctly. The series began today. I was meant to be here next week. So Steve and Catherine did a quick maneuvering of staff and rather make me drive to Orlando and drive back here next week. Uh, when I had another preaching engagement, they reconfigured. So I just want to thank them for their flexibility on that. February last year, March last year, I know what every single person in this building was doing. You were doing exactly the same as I was doing. You were gripped either in CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, or BBC like me, wondering, will it happen? Will it not happen? Will Russia invade Ukraine? And we highlighted so many times that surely Europe wouldn't spill back into some chaotic war. In fact, my second oldest son, Kirk, texts me and said, Dad, is there going to be a nuclear war? And for all of us who are primarily post-Second World War generation, I had an uncle fought, uh, rescued at uh, Dunkirk, went in on the second day of D-Day. Never would I have dreamed in my wildest dreams that any kid of mine would be saying, Dad, is there going to be a nuclear war? Looking at that theater just at the moment, it's interesting. People are asking the question, Kiev, Kiev, Kiev. Why is Vladimir Putin obsessed with Kiev? Religion. Toxic religious leadership. 
Because that battle is not just geopolitics. Because I'm going to tell you about another Vladimir, not Vladimir Putin, Vladimir the Rus, who a thousand years ago in Kiev was converted to Christianity. And he insisted on a mass baptism in the Depner River in Kiev. So literally, there and then in Kiev, the Holy Mother Russian Orthodox Church was born. And that's one of the reasons why Russia is so obsessed with Kiev. Why is that? What is happening there? What is happening is simply this. It's what I call toxic politics and toxic religion is mixing. In a cathedral in Russia at the moment, inside a cathedral, a place of worship, there is a picture of Archbishop Kirill, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, Stalin, a mass murderer, and Vladimir Putin. Iconic pictures, sanctified by, in inverted commas, a Christian church. Archbishop Creel called Vladimir Putin a miracle, a gift from God. Uh, categorically and unashamedly, I say this, Putin is a rapist, genocidal, a murderer, and is not a gift from God. He's a gift from Satan. So leadership in the 21st century. Who do we look to? Well, I'm going to take us way, way back in time, actually 4,000 years ago. And I just want to read two very short texts in the book of Genesis, because I'm going to talk about a real, transparent follower of God, Abraham, your father and my father. So it's okay to flip those up. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your land, your family, and your father's household for the land that I will show you, I will make of you a great nation and will bless you. I will make your name respected and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. Those who curse you, I will curse. All the families of earth will be blessed because of you. And just moving into the book of Hebrews, we have there in chapter 11 and 12, that kind of hall of faith. And it says this about Abraham. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was going to receive. As an inheritance, he went out without knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived in the land he had been promised as a stranger. He lived in tents along with Isaac and Jacob, who were co-heirs of the same promise. He was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah received the ability to have a child, though she herself was barren and past the age for having children, because she believed that the one who promised was faithful. It's an amazing text that, to have the ability to look forward. To look forward to a city whose foundation is in God. Catherine, in her prayer, alluded to what was happening there in Morocco. And interestingly, uh, Joyce and I had a conversation. My wife, who works alongside me and travels with me, we actually talked this January about going to 
Marrakesh, uh, which wasn't as badly devastated as parts of Morocco, but was devastated. So even our greatest architectural foundations are not secure. But Abraham categorically said, I'm looking to a secure foundation, a foundation that is built on the living God. The brilliant Jewish theologian Jonathan Sachs writing about Abraham said this, Abraham is the paradigm of an unheroic hero who does what is right because it is right and not for the sake of popularity or fame. The New York Times there a couple of years ago uh, wrote an article on that interesting topic of humility. I'm saying that everybody has discovered humility today. Pop stars, politicians, yoga teachers, actors, they will tweet, I am humbled by my followers. It begs the question in the first place, are they really that humble? Uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, caustic quotations was from a movie I saw the other night. The quotation wasn't in it, but Joyce and I, with two friends in Orlando, uh, went to see the movie Golda, Golda Meir, who's the only uh, woman uh, um, prime minister of Israel. And Golda Meir had a very, I like her, cheeky sense of humor. I confess my sins in that. And someone was once in her office, and she said to him, don't be humble you're not that great. Brilliant. <laughs> so it is. So in reality today, everyone wants to be humble. But the New York Times suggests that this was a very superficial humility. And that's when I look at Abraham's life. In reality, if you want to define it, he was true to the principles of the call of eternity, not the noise of noise. And for all of us who live in this 21st century world, if we're honest, the noise of now at times closets out the principles and the call of eternity. And I know as you move through this series over the next couple of weeks, I want you to ask that question. What does leadership look like? Not superficial, deceptive, duplicit leadership, but what does leadership look like that is true to the call of eternity? not the continuous noise and buzz of noise. And Sachs further commenting on Abraham's life uses that uh, phrase, lika lika, which means go by yourself. And in reality, as you look at Abraham's life, if we're going to be children of Abraham today, and all of us are descendants of Abraham, you have to be the courage to be different to challenge the idols of this age. And if we were to look back in time in an area of polytheism, it meant seeing this universe as the product of a single creative will, not meaningless but coherent, meaningful. In an era of slavery, it meant refusing to accept the status quo in the name of God, but challenging it in the name of God. When power was worshipped, it meant having a theology, a society that occurred for the powerless, the marginalized, the ostracized, the widow, 
and the orphan. And during centuries when humankind was sunk in ignorance, it meant honoring education as the key to human dignity and creating schools to provide universal literacy. And when war was the test of manhood, it meant striving for peace. And today in our so-called sophisticated 21st century, in an era of radical individualism, it means knowing that we are not what we own, but what we share, not what we buy, but what we give, that there's something higher than all our individual appetites and desires, a call that comes to all of us in this building today as it came to Abraham from outside ourselves, but it summons each of us in this building to make a contribution to this world. I just want to highlight shortly and briefly four things I see in Abraham's life that I hope are helpful. The first concept that I want to highlight in his life is expectations. Abraham hears this call. And Abraham, like us, was very normal. He struggled with this voice. I will give you and your descendants an everlasting possession as for you. He used that personal pronoun. I will make a covenant with you. You must keep the covenant and teach it to your children. And Catherine alluded to those younger kids that got their Bibles. You are doing what God said to Abraham, passing the teaching, the covenant, the blessings to generation to generation. And I hope all those younger kids whose pictures we saw earlier, in a world that is vying for their attention, in a world that promises everything but in reality delivers emptiness and nothing, it's important as a church you teach those children and their children eternal principles. I also see in Abraham's life something that's in all of your lives and in mine, ask my wife, imperfection. Because Abraham fails to keep the covenant. All of us in this building have failed to keep the covenant. But despite that, God holds Abraham tightly. He was mixed up, wavering back and forward, faith and doubt, asking questions that I know all of you have asked in this building. God, how am I to know? It just reeks of doubt. Abraham, with all his imperfections, how can I know? And so I know what you're sitting in church today because all of us have this ability to critique ourselves, I couldn't do this, I'd never be able to do leadership in the public space. The Bible is to me the most dysfunctional book on the planet. Why do I say that? Read it. It's filled with people like you and me. People who made mistakes, failed relationships, murder, deception, trickery, lying, it's all there. I mean, Noah who we teach our kids about in Sunday school, we always leave that bit out understandably where there's a little bit too much wine and a bit of nakedness. But Noah was still a person of God. Moses, 
person we talk about 3,000 years later. I mean, Moses was in exile for 40 years. I'm sure this isn't a gossipy church, but if you were, if Mr. Moses was a member here and hadn't been here for 40 years, I'm sure some of the town gossips in Gainesville would be saying, well, stuff Mr. Moses. He's messed his life and ministry up completely, but God wasn't finished with him. Because 40 years after that incident, as we all know, at that burning bush, God recommissions Moses. So I want you as a church to never give up on people. Because we have that tendency to do that. Uh, Philip Yancey, who I alluded to earlier, uh, has written a very, very short book, a series of short reflections entitling, I Was Just Wondering. And one of those articles he entitles, The Midnight Church. And he meets his friend Bob, and he says, hey, Bob, I, I haven't seen you at church lately. And Bob, who was a chronic alcoholic, said, no, I, I go to AA. I find in AA I am accepted. I mean, let's be honest, churches and religion can be the most judgmental, demeaning aspect of life on planet Earth. He was able to stand up in AA and say, my name is Bob, I'm an alcoholic. Stay here. We'll help you. We'll embrace you. I did a TED a Theo talk last year in Atlanta. And I know you've had this LGBTQ debate, and I'm quite sure there's many diverse views in this church, and that's fine, that's called life. But my teaching assistant a number of years ago at Candler School of Theology, where I lecture, was a young woman called Jen Carlisle. I'm telling you her story because she did a Ted Theo talk along with me. She was struggling with her sexuality. Badly. She turned to alcohol. And the church turned her back on her. And she did a Ted Theo talk with me last year. Google it. If you're interested, just Google Theo Talks. Don't listen to mine. Hers is much better. And she, her talk was entitled... Finding God in the basement. Where was the basement? Below the church. AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. She should have found God in the church, but the church disowned her. She found God in the basement. What does that say about leadership in the church? I sometimes cheekingly and teasingly and Days when I was pastoring churches, I'm more kind of like a Wesleyan itinerant lecturer and preacher now. But I often used to say, I have two people here I want to bring on my leaders board or church council. What phrase do you call? What do you call leaders board? Yeah, church council. Yeah. And I said, their name is uh, uh, Damien and Samuel. I says, now Damien, a little bit of a uh, bit of murder there, a bit of extramarital sex. Now, as regards this other gentleman uh, called Samuel, he sort of screwed up a bit religiously. He got a bit confused theologically. Who should we bring on? Oh, 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 let's bring on Samuel. And I said, I lied. I lied. Their names are David and Saul. So Saul messes up theologically, doesn't he? Kind of does this little sacrifice thing, doesn't get his theology exactly right. David, 
like murder and extramarital sex. What's the difference in David and Saul's life? One simple thing, repentance. Saul never wrote that great penitential prayer, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness. Blot out my transgressions. Restore your spirit within me. Real leaders know how to repent. And as we look back, what's in David's tombstone? Uh, Joyce and I have allegedly visited where he's buried in Jerusalem. He may or may not be there. But according to the Scriptures, what does it say? A person after God's own heart. So I'm saying to you as a church and to the leadership of this church, both lay and ordained, never ever give up on another person. Because God doesn't give up on people. The third thing I want to highlight in Abraham's life is this. Acceptance. You know that horrendous passage. I just wish it wasn't in the Torah, to be honest. I want you to take your son, your only son, Isaac, and take him to Mount Moriah and offer him as a burnt offering. All of us identify with Abraham there. Because into your life and into my life, let's be honest, what do you do when life doesn't make sense? Things happen. We're left to group for reasons to make sense out of it. And many, many times we simply come up empty. But you know what the real revelation was in that story, despite all the melodrama? The real revelation was when God stopped Abraham from thrusting the knife through Isaac's heart. And that revelation continues because the point is this. When life no longer made sense, Abraham obeyed anyway. And most of us interpret that story, and to a degree it's correct. I'll tell you why that story is in there, Gary. Because it explains why the Hebrew faith, alone in the ancient world, rejected child sacrifice. Okay. But it's also a symbol of holy ground, a place where radical obedience to God and deep religious faith was implemented. There's a writer called Mark Baterson. He's written this book with the strangest title called In a Pit with a Lion on a Snowy Day. And he says this about life. Some of the best things in life are totally unplanned and unscripted. He said, I'm not a movie critic, but my humble entertainment estimation the greatest movies have the highest levels of uncertainty. Whether the uncertainty is romantic or dramatic, scripts with the highest levels of uncertainty make the best movies. In the same vein, I think high levels of uncertainty make the best lives. What was Abraham's life? Abraham was a faith that embraced the uncertainties of life, Abraham was able to recognize a divine appointment when he saw it. 
I suppose as a church, you need to ask yourselves the question, whatever the future holds for this church, how you develop this amazing site to minister the 21st century. A divine appointment is recognizing that when you see it. So embrace relational uncertainty. It's called romance. Embrace spiritual uncertainty. It's called mystery. Embrace occupational uncertainty. It's called destiny. Embrace intellectual uncertainty. It's called revelation. The last thing I want this church, which I have a deep high regard for, and I preach in a lot of churches globally, this is a good church led by solid people. Make your lives an adventure of faith. Don't embrace boring institutional religion. Abraham didn't. And the final thing I want to highlight is this, resolve. Now, unless Jesus comes back, all of us in this building are going to have an experience, not necessarily together, but it's going to happen to all of us. We're all going to be probably on a deathbed. So what did Abraham do when he was on his deathbed? What was on his mind? How much is in my will? Who will my property go to? No, what was on his mind was the covenant God had made with him. Because when he was ready to die, Abraham wanted to get a wife for Isaac. Children, carry on the covenant. And he asked one of his servants to go and get Isaac a wife, but he said this, see to it that you do not take my son back there. And he underlines it again a couple of verses later. Do not take my son back there. And one of the problems in church, as we all know, is we keep looking back to those great days of church. I've heard those stories sometimes from older clergy who would have said to me, you know, Gary, in uh, Northern Ireland in the 1950s and 60s, our churches were filled. And maybe the cynic in me or hopefully the kind of low-level prophet in me said, oh, really? Well, your gift to my generation was a bloody sectarian war. Why? Because the churches didn't have the courage to deal with latent sectarianism, toxic politics, and toxic religion, and deal with a sectarian cockpit that pushes in the 30 years of political violence. Oh, yeah. You were stuffing yourselves with gospel blessings while underneath, politically and religiously, we were teetering on the brink. And that's why you need to have leadership. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I don't live here. And to be honest, I really don't care if some of you are Republicans or some of you are Democrats. Uh, when I travel back to Orlando, uh, I've been staying for 10 days with close Republican friends who are people of faith. On Wednesday, I traveled three miles to say with close Democratic friends who are people of faith. 
And trust me, they're, they're pretty normal, seriously, to all you Republicans, Democrats, very normal people just like you. So what has happened in the United States? Why is politics dominating this space so much? Because as all of you know, even if you disagree with your Republican or Democratic neighbor or friend, I mean, politics is temporal. The gospel's eternal. As one writer recently said, politics has a strong grip on our hearts. The gospel's grip should be stronger. And I challenge you all unashamedly, what is really the most important thing in your life? Your relationship with the eternal Christ or an obsession with politics? Maybe you need to switch off your news channels. Let me tell you a story. I was preaching in St. Petersburg there a couple of years ago, and Joyce, my wife, is very balanced around politics, so she watched a bit of CNN, and then she flipped over to Fox News, and then back to CNN, and back to Fox News, and in a fit of marital anger, I said to her, Joyce, get me the BBC. I'd had enough of listening to this eternal politics. That's what it, you know. So maybe I should have said, Joyce, don't get me the BBC. Get me Jesus Christ. And so I appeal to you as someone who has lived through a civil war. When I was a little boy, 1972, we had a terrorist incident every 40 minutes. You imagine what my childhood, my childhood looked like. And I've appealed to, I'm working with both Republicans and Democrats in this state and in Georgia, Aaron, the Carolinas, bringing them together for quiet conversations, saying, can we focus on the eternal? This is a great nation. But what made this nation great was leadership centered on the eternal. And I just make an appeal to you as a, as a close friend and a close ally of the United States, my Uncle Jimmy, who went in with some of your uh, relatives on D-Day, Normandy landings. So this nation's very close to my heart. Don't mess it up for the sake of the temporal. As a leadership and as a church, I ask you with grace and dignity and with deep respect, focus on the eternal. Abraham did, and you saw what they said about him thousands of years after his death in Hebrews. He built his life on a city whose foundation is a living God. Do likewise. Amen.